the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Welcome to a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your questions, Bible questions, life questions, church questions, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is to provide the phone call. 210-340-9585 is our main number. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app if you are driving in your car on this very cold day. The safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great weekend at church. We did here at Calvary Chapel Friday, uh, our Friday night service and then our three services yesterday. Uh, Boy, I don't know what we're going to do. More and more people keep coming and I guess that's a good problem, but we need space. This is what all of you can do for, for me. You can pray that God would provide enough money that we could get a building where all of our our ministries could be under one roof and we could get enough people to get them all in. That would be a real blessing. Um, I would appreciate it very, very much. Um, Tonight, we've got our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies going on here at 7 o'clock. Paula will be teaching the ladies, and then uh, everybody worships together, and then they split off into different places in in the church uh, if you can't make it tonight, ladies, uh, you can watch Paula on live stream at calvarysa.com. Okay, let's get to the questions that have been sent in. We had a flurry of them come in just before uh, the program. This one is from Jesus from our email inbox. I said, Pastor Ron, have you seen the 2000 movie called Left Behind? I saw it this weekend. I'm not sure if it's biblical. I was unsure. After the saved people were raptured, the people had another opportunity to be saved. So if people will get saved after the rapture, what's the point of being saved now? Personally, I don't want to take that chance, but I have a family member who asked it. Thank you very, very much. Jesus, this is a, 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 I, I was told that the Left Behind is back in the movies. But I thought it was a new production, and if this is a the two thousand movie, yes, I've seen it and read the books and and um, um, all that. Uh, I hope it's a new production, but um, it's based on the the Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye uh, biblical series, which I think started out really well, and then they started selling so many books they made it go on and on and on and on. So, yes, I've seen the 2000 movie called Left Behind. Um, And, of course, any movie, there's going to be some dramatic license taken, some creative license um, taken, and it represents a point of view. Now, the eschatology, Jesus, in the Left Behind series is solid. It's pre-trib, pre-millennial, and and I I found very little in there 
that would uh, would be controversial. Um, having said that, um, the idea that once all the Christians were raptured, that the people had another opportunity to be saved is true. You know, uh, the greatest revival in the history of the world is going to occur after the rapture of the church. That's important after Christians are taken away. That's our reward. It's the hope that we have. Um, but but there's still going to be an opportunity. God still loves people, and he's going to give them an opportunity. Remember, God is never without a remnant on this earth. Now, when you ask, what's the point of being saved now? Well, obviously, we want to be saved now so that we can serve the Lord in these last days. The idea that, well, you know, if we're going to have a chance to get saved after the rapture of the church, then I might as well sin now, have fun now, and then I can, I'll get saved in the, in the Great Tribulation. Um, that's the craziest thing ever because the, if you've read the book of Revelation, Jesus, uh, what's going to happen during the Great Tribulation is the worst time in the history of the world uh, unequal before or or certainly ever again, um, that's what it's going to be. Just read about the judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl or the vile judgments. Um, a complete and utter devastation. Things are going to be so bad for everybody. And then you factor in the persecution that those who won't take the mark of the beast are going to endure. Believe me, being a Christian, getting saved during the Great Tribulation is going to be the most difficult thing ever. So um, I'm with you. I don't want to take that chance. I'm saved. I'm going to, I'm going to be raptured. But the, the, the idea that, well, you know, I can sin now and I'll have another chance later um, misses the point completely. Um, when God pours out his wrath, his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world, that's what's going to happen immediately following the rapture of the church. Believe me, no one is going to stand it. Now, what I would tell your family member is this. If you want to accept Jesus Christ now, while it's easy, I mean, literally, it's easy. We're saved by grace through faith. We just have to believe, uh, ask Jesus into our hearts, turn from sin, and, and desire to follow him. If we'll do that, it's easy now. If they won't do it now while it's easy, why would they do it when it's going to cost them everything? During the Great Tribulation, he says people won't eat unless they've taken the mark of the beast. There's going to be an underground. You're going to be on the run from people that want to kill you, from authorities that want to destroy you. So uh, it's going to be the most difficult time in the history of the world. Death, destruction. Again, just read um, from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19. Just read what's going to happen. Nobody wants to be here. Now, the, the rapture of the church is going to kick off this great tribulation. But remember, God always has a witness. And he's appointed the 144,000 witnesses. And they're going to lead this great revival. So it's going to be a wonderful revival. But all of the people that get saved, Jesus, all of them are going to die for their faith. That's the price. It's going to be martyrdom. And I just don't think that's going to be really, really something that your family member wants to deal. Um, you know, another thought is is your family member uh, might not live to make it to the Great Tribulation. That's why we get saved now. We get saved now because we're lost and we desperately need to be saved. Thank you for the question, Jesus. Here is another question. This one comes in from... Maverick from our email inbox. Uh, hello, Pastor Ron. Trust this email question finds you blessed and highly favored. Well, Maverick, thank you. I feel both blessed and highly favored. Here's the question. First Kings 9.28 says, uh, Hiram's navy and Solomon's servants came to Ophir and fetched from there. He's reading King James. I love it. Fetched from thence gold, 420 talents, and brought it to King Solomon. The sum equated to 80 million six hundred forty thousand dollars second chronicles 818 maverick your email said 918 but i looked up it's 818 the servants of solomon to Ophir uh, took then 450 talents 
of gold and brought them to King Solomon. The sum equaled 86,400,000. Please help me better understand the 420 talents versus the 450 talents, that difference. Thank you very, very much. Um, Maverick, I, I'll be really candid with you. I I, I don't know. I'm, I'm digging it out, or, or I will be digging it out. Uh, I got the question just a, a few minutes before airtime. Uh, so uh, I don't have an answer. Now, I can say this. The Hebrew alphabet and the lettering um, on the, the, the old manuscripts that we have um, is sometimes very difficult, very difficult to determine one little number from another number or one letter from another. And sometimes in your Bible, it'll say the Hebrew is difficult to translate here. And that's the reason. Now, I suspect, Maverick, that that's the case. And it's just one copyist, the, the writer of First Kings, um, um, uh, translating a word um, or a number in this case one way, and then the writer of a Second Chronicles um, translating it another way. Uh, I don't know, um, but I'm going to dig in a little bit better. And if you stay with us, Maverick, uh, for the rest of the week, uh, I should have an answer for you by tomorrow's program. Thank you for your patience. Um, none of that causes me any difficulty about the inerrancy of Scripture. There are copyist errors. Only the original autographs are without error. Only the original autographs. And, of course, none of those exist today. Now, we have enormous evidence, manuscript evidence, that, that validates um, what the original man, the manuscripts contained. But uh, there are some copyist errors, and there are some other places where the Hebrew, uh, because of the way their, um, the, the language is, it's just very, very difficult to uh, interpret. So, Maverick, I will get back to this, and I will get you an answer as best I am able very, very soon. Here's another question where we're not told the answer. This is anonymous from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. What gate specifically did Jesus triumphantly enter through when he came to Jerusalem? Uh, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke chapter 19, and John 12 does not specifically reference. Anonymous, uh, you know, when the Bible's silent, we have to be silent. We can make some guess, but there's no value in making guesses. It doesn't matter. The point of the passage is that Jesus... Jesus made his way from Bethany into Jerusalem on exactly the right day, uh, riding a donkey, just as was predicted in the Old Testament prophets. Um, he came not, not one day too early, one day too late. He came at just the right time. Uh, and then we have the details that the Holy Spirit wanted us to know. But the gate that he came into uh, doesn't really matter in terms of the narrative of the story. So remember, all the details aren't given to us. We're given what we need to, to truly understand. And in this particular case, the triumphal entry is so important as a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, Matthew, particularly because that was Matthew's point, his, he was writing to Jews uh, from a Jewish perspective, uh, presenting Jesus as the Christ or the anointed one. Um, but we don't know what gate he entered through um, all we know is that the people were lined up. Um, I always think of the Rose Bowl parade because I'm from Southern California. I think of all the people lined up waiting for that moment when when their Christ was going to appear. And, of course, when they did, that's the, the reason that they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, they knew that this was the moment that the Messiah was coming. And when Jesus showed up, the reality, the tragic reality, Anonymous, is that uh, the people didn't want him. You know, they didn't know who it was going to be. They just knew it was going to be that day. That was prophesied by the prophet Daniel. Um, we have the dates, um, 173,880 days from the issuing of the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. We know when that was from Nehemiah chapter 2 specifically. And so on exactly that day, and I'm going to go do, do this from memory, but I, I think I'm correct, Anonymous, that would be April 6th, 32 A.D., and that is according to the widely accepted scholarship of Sir Robert Anderson 
Um, in his book, The Coming Prince, the research seems to be flawless. So April 6, 32 AD, that's what was important. And the people were there to see their Christ. But just like so many of us, these 2,000 years or nearly 2,000 years later, uh, were disappointed in Jesus. They wanted Jesus on a war horse. They wanted Jesus to come and free them from Roman oppression. Well, in the same way, uh, the world that we live in, we want a Jesus who will accept our sin. We want a Jesus who will let us keep living uh, the, the lives that we've been living. Um, just take away all of our problems. That's not who he is. We have to accept him for who he is and what he is. And that was really the stumbling block. They were excited about their Christ coming in, but when they saw Jesus, well, we learned how fickle people really were because one moment they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And days later, they're crying out, crucify him, give us Barabbas. So we don't know the gate for sure. And the speculation really has no value at all. If I can encourage everybody, the, the information that we don't have uh, all of the guessing and all of the speculation really distracts you from the point of the passage. So there's there's no value whatsoever to our walk with Jesus, uh, trying to, to, to determine details or facts that aren't provided for us in the Word of God. And remember, we're saved by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so there are things that we don't need to know in order to believe. So thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a $64 million, billion-dollar question I get asked a lot. This one is from Jacob. He says, how can I reconcile free will and God's sovereignty? Uh, Jacob, both of those doctrinal issues are taught cover to cover in Scripture. So it is true that we, you and I, we have free will. We can make choices to serve God or reject God. We can make choices to serve him as a believer or as a believer to sort of be lukewarm and lazy spiritually and just hope that we're going to cash our ticket in heaven when the time comes. Or we can make the choice to serve him with our whole hearts. Now, here's the problem. God knows what choice we're going to make. And his sovereignty is never more powerfully demonstrated. God's sovereignty simply means that God is in control of all things. And Romans 8, 28 says he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And God's sovereignty is never more powerfully demonstrated than the fact that he can use our choices to rebel against him to accomplish his will. You know, Lucifer had free will. He chose to rebel against God, and God has been using him ever since that fall. So he made a free will choice. The angel Lucifer, now we know him as the devil, he made a free will choice to, to rebel against God, and he has been referred to in the, the scriptures as God's servant ever since. God has him on a leash. He's wicked. He's evil. He's causing a lot of pain. Um, but but God knew that would happen in a fallen world, and uh, and so uh, but but God's sovereignty um, keeps Satan on a leash. In the same way, God's sovereignty moves things around. You know, Jacob. One of the things that I look back on, I've been saved next month. It'll be thirty-two years. Uh, I look back often on my pre-Christ life, um, and 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 see the hand of God protecting me from making serious, serious errors, um, uh, protecting me from uh, doing things that, that perhaps I would have crossed a line that I could never have come back for, but I could see God throwing up those roadblocks. Now, he didn't keep me from making the choice to rebel, but he made it hard. And fortunately, in my case, um, because he made it hard, um, I, would, I just got rid of those, um, those plans. So God is sovereign, but sovereignty, and this is, I think, where a lot of people get caught off, Jacob. Sovereignty does not mean God causes things to happen. You know, part of the problem with the Calvinist perspective is irresistible. Um, God's will is irresistible. Um, it's not. We resist God's will all the time, and, and yet God still accomplishes his purpose. 
And when we go to be with the Lord at the rapture or when we, we then die, um, we're going to appreciate God's sovereignty more and more and more. So here's the thing. Both of those things are true. God's ways are not our ways. And while we think in a linear fashion, God does not. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts above our thoughts. And God is simply uh, shuffling the deck in heaven and using the choices that we make to accomplish his will, even when we make choices that seem to oppose what he wants for us. I tell the people here at Calvary Chapel, Jacob, all the time, all the time, that they can resist God's will, but God is going to make it really difficult. The man or the woman that says, well, I want to do my thing my way on my terms, uh, God just laughs at that. And he just throws up roadblock after roadblock, and none of those people are ever truly happy or satisfied. And that's because resisting God is predictably difficult. And so God just makes it really, really hard. And no one who does things on their terms is going to have a life that is filled with the abundant fruit that Jesus wants for all of us. And the reason he makes it hard for us is he's trying to nudge us back into his perfect, pleasing, acceptable will. Good question, Jacob. You know, I have a, a, my old pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, who is now with the Lord. He used to say when somebody would ask him a question like that, he would say, you know, I think when I get to heaven and you're going through the gates on one side of that gate it's going to say enter of your own free will and then as you get through the gate you're going to look at the other side of the gate and it's going to say chosen by God I think that's a pretty good description these things are too much for us to understand but we can accept the fact that we have free will and God is sovereign Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Your toll free eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Here is a question from Christian. He says, "Why did you want to become a pastor? I've heard that no one should desire the calling of a pastor." Um, you know, you're right. Uh, in part, um, James says, "Not many of you should seek to be teachers because we stand a stricter judgment." But that isn't a judgment about salvation, Christian. That's a judgment, meaning that we are more accountable. Those of us who study more, those of us who know more, are way more accountable to God to live what we believe or what we teach others. So when you see pastors, and there unfortunately are tons of them, but you see pastors who are caught in secret sin, and you see pastors that are living duplicitous lives, uh, causing difficulty, taking advantage of their people. Um, when you see that, believe me, God is not going to be patient with them for a very long time. He loves them. He's going to try to nudge them back into place. But if they refuse, there's going to be a lot of pain in their lives. And a lot of these pastors that you see publicly falling, uh, Christian, they're the ones who... Um, are really trampling on the grace of God and on the gift that God has given them. Uh, I became a pastor because uh, God made it clear that that was my calling. Um, when I got saved, Christian, I didn't know anything at all about what a pastor did. I, I wasn't a church person. I'd never opened a Bible. Uh, I was only six months old in the Lord when, when God made it very clear that I was called to be a pastor. And I just said, okay, Lord, if that's what you want, I'm all in. I don't know what a pastor does, but um, that's that's uh, why I I wanted to be I wanted to be obedient to the Lord. I, I was so blown away that He would entrust me with any kind of ministry, um, let alone becoming a pastor. Um, we started this church uh, four years after I got saved. So that's not very much time. I wasn't a young man at the time. I was almost 40 uh, when I got saved. So um, I just wanted to become a pastor. Now, when you hear that no one should desire the calling of a pastor, uh, I always have a difficulty with that. We had a, a woman who was in a Bible study that I was teaching um, not too long after I got saved. And she she said the same thing. She said, you seem to be happy about being a pastor. I don't think your calling is really from God. Because pastors, I'm told, should be dragged kicking and screaming into the pulpit. That's not true. 
When you know what God wants you to do, that ought to be the single desire of your life, the one thing that you pursue with all of your strength. So, uh, no, I as soon as I knew for sure that this is what God wanted me to be, then I didn't want to be, nor did I even consider doing anything else. Actually, Christian, I wanted to go back into business. I'm pretty, I was very successful in business. God has given me the gift to make money. Um, it's just even before I was saved, that was just part of my life. Uh, but the reality is, is he said no to that because he had a better calling for me. And I thought, well, I could, I can do things in business differently than I did before. I could, I could show people that doing things your way, Lord. And I didn't convince him. And the reality is I'm so blessed and pleased that what he did was, was direct me toward being a pastor uh, because my life is richer than I ever imagined it could be. Now, I haven't got any money, but my life is richer and more fulfilling than I ever dreamed it would be. So, Christian, if you think you've been called to be a pastor, let me tell you, there's no better job in the world. Go for it with all of your heart and do it with excitement. Do it with excitement. Is it hard sometimes? Yeah. But it's much harder to resist the call of God. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Monday show, 340-9585. I love your calls. The phones have been quiet, and I tell you always that you're way more interesting than I am. Here is a question from Marcus. He says, can someone accept Christ without repenting? The answer, Marcus, is no. We cannot come to Jesus on our terms. We can come the way we are. I want that to be clear to everybody. We can come to Jesus no matter how messy we are. We can come just the way we are, but we can't stay that way. And the reason we come to Christ is because we realize that we've messed things up and only Jesus can fix those things. So we have to come to him sort of uh, metaphorically, hat in hand. Jesus, I've messed everything up. This is exactly how I did. Lord, if you're real, I need you is what I said. I need Paul as Jesus. And he met me right there. But he met me because I was at that point where I realized that I needed to be changed. That I couldn't keep living the way I'd been living uh, because everything was wrong. Part of the problem, Marcus, with a question like this is that that too often, you know, we think um, Jesus, since he'll take us the way we are, then, then he'll accept me the way I am. No, he saves you to make you into someone completely new. Repentance is the first word of the gospel message. You, you, you simply can't uh, share the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody uh, effectively or accurately without talking about the need to repent. Now, repentance is misunderstood. It just means to miss the mark. That's what the word sin actually means, to miss the mark. It's sort of, uh, it's an old uh, English word, um, uh, a dart player, in, in like in a, in a tavern. Um, you know, you're aiming at a particular mark on the board and you miss it. Well, that's what sin is. We miss the mark of the high calling that Jesus Christ has given us as human beings. And when we miss the mark, we got to get back on track. And the only way to do that is to say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner. I keep on sinning, but I don't want to sin anymore. That's when we meet Jesus. That's when his holiness, you know, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin, I'm guilty, of righteousness, I can't be righteous apart from Christ, and of judgment, if I don't get right with God, I'm going to be judged, and that requires a complete change. So, Marcus, when people say, no, we're saved by grace, and we don't have to do anything, 
Repentance is not a work. Repentance is a condition. My life is a disaster, and, and I need help. And that's when Jesus, as he did for me, literally, his hand was re- reached down to me. I fell down on my face on a public street in Upland, California. He extended his hand, not physically, you understand that, and he picked me up. And we started walking a completely different direction than I'd ever been walking before. That's what repentance is. I was going one way, and now, Jesus, I met you, so let's go the other way. I want to walk towards you instead of walking away from you. But no one, Marcus, no one has met Jesus without expressing sorrow for their sin, their condition. I need to be rescued. That's what salvation is. It's a rescue operation from heaven. And you got to turn away from the old you and walk in the newness of life. It's still, you're still going to make mistakes. You're going to do some things, but you're going to hate it when you sin. That's what repentance really is. We have too many churches that are teaching an easy grace message because they want to fill seeds. But the reality is they're not introducing people to the real Jesus. Now, I get a lot of flack for this, Marcus, because, oh, it's not grace. It is grace. Unmerited favor. I didn't deserve to be picked up off that street by Jesus. But he, knowing the condition of my heart, knowing the desperation of my life, he offered me a life preserver, and I took it. And 32 years later, almost 32 years later, I am the most grateful man on the face of the earth because he just changed everything. So, Marcus, I hope that answers your question satisfactorily. Oscar has a big question. How can we minister to the homeless? It seems like sharing Jesus isn't enough to help them practically. I know it is, but should we do more? Oscar... A couple of things. The the homeless situation that we have in our country now is not fixable. Uh, It will be fixable. Jesus will fix it in Revelation chapter 19 when he comes back and restores justice to this world. You remember even in Jesus' time in Luke chapter 16 in the, the story, not a parable, the story of Lazarus, the beggar, and the rich man. Um... The, the 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 life that Lazarus led was a miserable, miserable life. But because he trusted God, he was taken to paradise. The rich man that rejected any help for the homeless, well, he was in torment. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. And what's happened, Oscar, in the crazy mixed up world that we live in, We've decided that homeless people have the right to infringe upon the rest of the population, certainly the majority of people who are working, who are trying to keep um, uh, things nice, uh, who are trying, and it doesn't matter. Just if you went to Southern California, uh, the homeless population has taken over, just taken over. Uh, Go to San, San Francisco area. Um, businesses have been forced to close down. Businesses that working men and women have sacrificed their whole lives to build. And now they can't get into the businesses because of the, the, the drug needles, because of the tents, because of the, the people going to the bathrooms, um, defecating on the streets. And nobody will come into their business. Venice Beach in California, which was a, a crazy but but really neat tourist city. I, I grew up in Southern California, and we go to Venice Beach regularly. Um, it was it was fun. It was interesting, weird. Um, some of the most expensive real estate in the world, and you can't walk around in Venice Beach anymore because the homeless have taken over. So the world has overreacted. We've given them the right to become squatters, denying the rights of good, hardworking people. Now, having said that, I'm not heartless. We do everything that we can to minister to the homeless. But, Oscar, here's what you've got to conclude. The only thing we've got to give them 
is Jesus. Now, if you want to buy them lunch, um, that's great. Uh, but, but we've got Jesus. Silver or gold have I none, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And, and Peter looked at the beggar at the gate beautiful and said, rise and walk. So that's our responsibility. We can't fix the problem. And when they're aggressively panhandling, when they're, they're uh, taking over territory that, that they haven't paid for, um, you know, there's just nothing that we can do about that. We can love them, we can pray for them, we can share Jesus with them, and, of course, we should always be kind, but we can't solve their problems. So don't let the enemy heap guilt on you because you can't help everyone. You know, Oscar, we have a... Um, a yearly event, Joy of Jesus. It's our signature ministry here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Uh, and we go downtown to Travis Park um, once a year, the last, usually the last Saturday of October. And it's a, a huge deal for the homeless. I mean, uh, the, the park is packed. Um, we provide clothing, medical care. Uh, we Our whole multi-medical staff goes. Uh, we provide haircuts. Uh, we provide... Um, clothing we provide even dog grooming we give away bicycles we give away literally hundreds of bicycles um and and we we just do things uh, feed them and and all of that it's just a day i call it a day of kindness um but you know what every year we go back they're there again so we can help and we can be kind and we can point them to jesus but they've got to make the choice and the reality is many, if not most of them, are on the streets because that's where they want to be. They don't want to live under rules. One needs only to go down to Haven of Hope and see what's happened to, I think, a well-intended effort to provide them safe refuge, get them in out of the cold or out of the hot. But the reality is they don't care. Giving him Jesus is enough. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from our mobile app from Anonymous. Should every couple go to premarital counseling? If so, for how long? Are there any reading materials that would help in the same way? Um, Anonymous, I'm going to give you the, 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 my stock answer here. Every Christian couple, and uh, I'm only dealing with Christian couples um, in the church. This radio program is directed toward Christians. Should go to premarital counseling. Um, how long? It depends. I'm doing some premarriage counseling now. We're going to have our fourth um, session, um, and it'll be our next to the last one. However, I've known these kids since they were born. So they've heard every word I ever said. There's nothing new that I can bring up in, in premarital counseling. But for people that I don't know or people that are new to the church, um, then usually we have six sessions. Um, they're pretty intense, pretty direct. Uh, we're not just wasting time. We're preparing them to honor God with their marriage. And I think, yes, every Christian couple needs to go to premarital counseling. One of the things that I've seen consistently over the years is that God is so faithful and if we start pre-marriage counseling um, and there are issues that are going to arise in the marriage those issues will be revealed during the pre-marriage counseling and I've had in many cases um, couples where I've had to say you know what it's just not a good idea that you guys get married neither one of you is ready for it neither one of you wants to yield to the will of God and things are going to be difficult at best for you. And and uh, in most cases, when it's gotten that point, they both agreed. So, yes, they should go to premarital counseling. How long depends on the church. Now, regarding any reading materials, Ephesians. <laughs> Ephesians. Read Ephesians. Why would we read anything else? We don't need somebody's ideas on marriage. We don't need... Um, uh, all of the books that are out there and all of the negotiation books and, and here's how you settle arguments. Uh, read Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 
sit down together and pray. Amos 3.3, 3, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so? It really concerns me that in a situation like premarriage counseling or, or any other kind of counseling, that the first thing people want is books. Well, let's get this series or that book or this book because this PhD says this. It really concerns me that people would go to other humans rather than going to the Word of God. Now, I realize when we don't like what the Word of God says, we're always looking for alternatives, but that's not going to do what God intends for pre-marriage counseling to do. So, uh, reading materials, no. Anonymous, go to your pastor uh, and he or somebody on his staff. Um, let him know you're going to get married or you desire to get married and you would like to go through pre-marriage counseling. But, but I can't tell you uh, strongly enough how important that is. So, yes, go to pre-marriage counseling. And no, you don't need to read books. What you need to read instead is the Word of God. One other suggestion, and I say this quite often here at our church, uh, Anonymous. In your church, find an older married couple who are serving the Lord together faithfully, whose lives demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, They've been together 20 years, 30 years. In in my case with Paula, we've been married over 50 years now. Um, Find somebody who's walking with Jesus and ask them to share their hearts with you. We're getting married, or this is our plan to get married, and we've noticed that your marriage is really a, a light. You're so full of joy. You still actually look like you love one another. Tell us how you do it. And one of the things that we need to remember is that our senior citizens are an untapped resource in the Church of Jesus Christ. So find somebody in your church who's older, who's been through all of the things that you're about to go through. And they've come out loving Jesus more and loving the man, his wife more, and the woman respecting and loving her husband more. And sit down and and just glean from the treasury that is available to you through through those older couples in the church. I've got several um, uh, couples in our church that um, when people come up and they're, sub- they're, they're dealing with a problem in their marriage or they're con- contemplating getting married, uh, almost without fail, the Lord will bring a specific couple to mind and I'll put those two together and that will be the very first session. And And I think it's really important to do that. So, good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question from, I can't find where to put my mouse here. Um, Another anonymous question. Pastor Ron, would you do marriage counseling for a gay couple? If not, why not? Um, No, anonymous. I have nothing to say to a gay couple except to repent. And I don't mean that in an unkind way. I think if you've been listening to this program for any length of time, you know there's not an unkind bone in my heart. But but a gay couple cannot have a marriage that's blessed by God, period. Uh, and so, no, uh, why would I sanction something that God forbids? And uh, if I would ever do something like that, I can't imagine how I would explain that to Jesus on the day that I stand before him. So, no, I, I wouldn't do marriage counseling at all. Um, I have talked to gay couples and told them um, why the need to repent. Um, I, exp- I understand, and I think this is something that we ought to, every Christian ought to remember, that when a gay couple um, is, is asking questions about Jesus Christ, we need to understand that they're going to have to throw that relationship away in order to come to Jesus Christ. You're going to have to get rid of the sin in their life and then come to Jesus on his terms. I addressed that in the first half of the program. Um, and, and I want you to think about the difficulty of that. If somebody asks you, in order to get to heaven, you've got to throw away the one person in this world that you love and the one person in this world that loves you. And gay couples are no different than heterosexual couples in the sense that Most of the time, their intention is to get together and stay together in a marriage forever. 
and, and yet it never works out or seldom works out. And you're telling them that this person that they want to spend the rest of their life with now can no longer be in their life, period. You've got to end this relationship and you've got to end it right now. Um, do you understand how difficult that is? Especially as we live in a world that, that's brainwashing people, telling them, no, that's fine, it's okay, it's a, a, a good thing to do. And now suddenly somebody's saying, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to choose Jesus instead of choosing this man or this woman that you're with. And when we understand the difficulty of that, the emotional difficulty of making that decision, well, then and only then are we really in a position where we can be an effective minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ for them. So uh, I've talked to a lot of gay couples and gay people and just said, you know what? God loves you. And he is so much better for you. But as difficult as this sounds, you can't remain in this relationship. Then the second thing that we're asking them to do is to live a life, especially somebody who's uh, same-sex attracted, um, um, no physical desire for somebody of the opposite sex. Remember, we live in a fallen world. we got to realize that we're also asking them to live a life without the possibility of enjoying sex. And we're all made to be sexual beings. So that's really, really difficult. And I think when we understand that, then we can have some compassion. And by the way, for anybody out there who's concerned about what I'm saying, uh, I, I say exactly the same thing to heterosexual people who refuse to stop having sex before they're married. You can't please God. It's impossible to be um, living under the blessing of God. You can't go to heaven. You live like this. You won't inherit the kingdom of God. And people looked at me and said, are you telling me that, that I can't have sex? And I said, yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And they said, well, that's crazy. Nobody believes that anymore. And I always remind them that Jesus does. He's the one who wrote it. So anonymous, no, I would not do marriage counseling uh, or pre-marriage counseling. Uh, what I will do is talk to them about Jesus. Here is another anonymous question. Is it okay to be angry with God after a miscarriage? Uh, anonymous, God can take it. God can take it. Let me say this just generally speaking. Anytime that you're angry with God, you're wrong. Period. And I want you to think about the genesis of this question. It presumes that God owes us a healthy baby, a healthy pregnancy. And it's God's fault if it doesn't work out. It's not God's fault. We live in a fallen world. People die. Babies die. We've got two babies in our church right now who are in NICU units. And, um, you know, they're, 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 there's difficulties with, with childbirth. We've got more and more babies being born prematurely. And uh, it causes all kinds of problems. That's not God's fault. It's not God's fault. So um, while you're wrong if you're angry with God, God understands your emotional state. God can take it. His shoulders are big and broad. But what he wants you to do is think a little bit more deeply. And he wants to be the one that you can run to with your grief. I understand grief. But God is the only one who can carry that grief. So understand that if you're angry with God, you're wrong. And then run to the one, the only one, who has a solution for you. Last question of the program today. Time is going fast. Three minutes. Okay, I can do this. This one is from Jonathan. He says, is worrying or being afraid a sin? You know, Jonathan, I get really frustrated because I hear people all the time say, you know, Jesus said, do not worry. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Uh, I hear that all the time. And, and so if you are afraid or if you worry, it's a sin. It's not. I'm afraid all the time. But the sin only occurs if we let that fear keep us from being obedient to God. Now, worrying 
specifically doesn't help anyone. I tell the church here, and this is just a number I made up, but probably it's pretty accurate. 80% of the stuff we worry about never happens. And worrying compromises our health. We can't sleep. Um, we get grumpy and, and, and uh, our witness is compromised. So worrying um, is the human condition. But we need to overcome worry. We need to overcome fear by faith. So when we are afraid, we simply say, okay, Jesus, I'm afraid, but you've never failed me. I'm going to do this for you anyway. And if we don't do that, then, Jonathan, we come into a place where our worry or our fear crosses the line of sin. I just don't think enough of us, I don't really believe that enough of us have given Jesus a chance to show how trustworthy he is, how faithful he is. And even though I explained a moment ago, I'm afraid all the time, God has been so faithful and I've seen him do such impossible things that now when I'm afraid, but he's asked me to do something, my response is, well, how can I say no with all the things that you've done, Lord, with your faithfulness? How could I possibly even think about saying no? So I just grab onto Jesus a little bit tighter and say, okay, Lord, you lead, I'm going to follow. And Jonathan, he is always, always, always faithful to do that. So it's not a sin. Don't let the super spiritual types say, well, you know, if I have enough faith, I'm never afraid or I'm not going to worry. Everybody worries. Everybody has those times of fear. But that's why we need faith to overcome that fear. Hey, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back here tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.